Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir Dimon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have Penobscot Nation Police Chief uh, Bob Bryant and also the um, um, special guest today is Dr. Marcella Sorg uh, from the Margaret Chase Smith Policy Center. And our topic uh, will be uh, the uh, opioid crisis. So, uh, first of all, uh, welcome, Marcella. Marcy, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good morning. Good. Um, And um, Bob? Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. Um, So, my thought was, I'm going to introduce Marcella Sorgan in a one second here, uh, Marcel. I'm going to just uh, introduce you from your your bio on the Margaret J. Smith Center site, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, professor Marcella Sorg uh, is a research professor, uh, Department of Anthropology, uh, Climate Change Institute, and Margaret J. Smith Policy Center. Uh, She's a medical and forensic anthropologist specializing in health policy, particularly as it concerns public health, uh, public safety, and the investigation of death and injury. Um, I'm going to skip the rest of that. I, I think the important part of your bio is your, uh, uh, your, your, your service with the state office of the uh, chief medical examiner in Maine. Um, and also... Yeah. Uh, Do you also do the same thing for New Hampshire, Delaware, and Rhode Island? I do, um, but not so much with the drug statistics. The drug statistics are focused in Maine. Okay, so that's what we're interested in right now. And if you could just, I know you've done some reports on the the death, drug death statistics uh, in the state of Maine. And uh, could you tell us about that? Um, we've been following uh, and monitoring the drug death situation in Maine actually since 2002 when we began to see an increase in pharmaceutical or prescription drug-related uh, deaths. Um, in the last few years, since 2012, we've had a big increase in the number of those deaths uh, due to non-pharmaceutical, that is to say, synthetically made um, opioid drugs. Uh, a lot of them are made uh, in other countries. 
And in the last year, we had more deaths than we've ever had. We had 418 deaths in the state. Um, and a lot of them, um, at least 85%, were caused by an opioid of one sort or another. Uh, fentanyl, which is a pharmaceutical drug sometimes, um, but these fentanyl drugs that are causing the deaths are coming from um, out of the country. They are made non-pharmaceutically um, as a powder, and they've been mixed with heroin or pressed into counterfeit pills um, and marketed in various ways. But fentanyl is very, very toxic. And so that's, that's the main pattern that we've been seeing. Yeah, and you did a you did a report, right? Yes, there, there's a report, and it's actually posted on the attorney general's website. If anyone wants it, um, a copy of it is there. It's, it's just a few pages, ten pages, and um, <clears throat> it really summarizes all those statistics. So, in your opinion, what's the uh, highest cause of death, which are the there's various drugs, right? Right now, uh, I would have to say fentanyl and the analogs of fentanyl, which are chemically similar, are causing 70% of our opioid deaths. So certainly opioid deaths are they're the elephant in the room, and then within those, fentanyl and its analogs are causing 70%. Um, I, I should say that uh, the deaths that are the drugs causing the deaths are not exactly the same as the drugs causing overdoses, but they are the ones that people die from. So the opioids causing overdoses may be a slightly different configuration, slightly different kinds of drugs, um, perhaps more heroin, for example. But the ones causing death are pre predominantly fentanyl. So do you have actual uh, death numbers for the uh, fentanyl deaths? Uh, yes, I do. Um, hang on a moment. Uh, fentanyl and its analogs um, caused 247 of the 400 uh, 81 deaths, or 400, sorry, 418 deaths. So that number, again, was um, 247 deaths this year, this, this 2017, due to fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. Yeah. And those are deaths, I mean, those are uh, deaths caused by drugs that are being trafficked, is that right? That's correct. And are there any sort of like... Uh, prescription opioid overdoses? or Yes, <clears throat> we had, a, and these overlap because sometimes people have both things. They have a pharmaceutical and they have fentanyl. Uh, so uh, the deaths that had a pharmaceutical opioid or a prescription opioid uh, listed on the death certificate uh, were 124 and that's statewide? Yes. 
cocaine is also increasing um, and has increased quite a bit in the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, is there anything that uh, you think is important to let people know about this? Well, just that um, it's tremendously dangerous and that there's no way to tell what the concentration is. There's no way to tell <clears throat> if you're looking at a white powder, how much of it might be fentanyl and how much of it might be heroin. And there's there's no way to tell how it's going to affect you in particular because people have different levels of tolerance. So some of these uh, fentanyl uh, and, and its analogs, in, uh, I believe it's, I think it's your report, it says that these were are manufactured in labs in China. Yeah, fentanyl and and the analogs uh, are many of them are manufactured in China. That's correct. And then they're shipped through other countries. Right. Sometimes other countries. Sometimes directly to the United States. And the reason that that's so such a popular combination of uh, drugs is because of the price cheaper um i it is cheaper in some ways than um prescription drugs and more available the um international drug cartels moved into a space vacated by people's addictions to prescription drugs when prescription drugs became less available uh, for various reasons um the drug cartels moved into that space. So compared to the rest of the country, what does Maine look like as far as... Uh, the the east, the northeast states and the east um, have more of a problem with opioids than other parts of the country. Um, however, there are states that have a worse problem than we do, uh, New Hampshire, West Virginia... Uh, but it varies from year to year, and um, it's it's a big problem throughout the country. Okay. Um, Bob, do you have a question for Dr. Sorg? Yeah, I was wondering if you've uh, had some data on the uh, maybe the age demographics or even social demographics regarding the deaths. Yes. Um, the average age for the deaths is uh, between 38 and 41. However, there's um, quite a few that are in their late 20s. Um, and so there's a bump up at that spot in the demographic. And then another bump up um, when you get to late 30s, early 40s. Um, these, uh, keep in mind that People who are older are more vulnerable. They have other conditions that cause them to be more vulnerable, like a liver problem or a lung problem or a cardiac problem. Uh, they're on other drugs, which may interact with the opioids. And so older people tend to die um, a little more uh, than than younger folks do, we have a less than less than two percent are under twenty one. 
Yeah, I guess some of that would be surprising. I think a lot of people have a misconception that uh, if, if they saw some of the death data, they would correlate that to maybe a younger age. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and uh, part of the reason for that is that the younger ages may be using but may not be dying as often. That may be because of what drugs they're using. It may be because they are healthier. Um, it's, it's difficult to say. So it kind of begs the question, I guess, the older people that are, that are dying, are, are they the ones that are uh, on prescription drugs? I would say that older people are more likely to have a prescription for an opioid, but when I look at these files on these people who are dying, most of them don't have prescriptions for the opioids that killed them. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, uh, I know that you have a class that you have to rush to. So I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. You're very welcome. And uh, maybe at some point in time we'll have a longer discussion on this topic. So, But thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. So uh, Chief Bryant, tell me about, uh, you know, there are different drugs that we had just talked about the various, I don't know, fentanyls and all that. Uh, how, what's your experience with that stuff? I mean, what do you know about that? Well, you know, I think that uh, looking back over time, uh, you know, the, the choice, the drug choices, uh, uh, changes ha have uh, occurred. You know, I can remember being a young officer in the 80s and uh, mid-80s when I started in the... the uh, the big, the drug of choice back then was powdered cocaine and, and crack cocaine, uh, were, were the drugs that were really reaping uh, havoc across the country. Um, you know, there was a shift in the the 90s, ecstasy and, and those type of synthetic drugs started to make a push into the, uh, uh, I guess per se, the market, uh, uh, and then it, uh, I think the the prescription pill problem came into play, I think, looking at, you know, probably the mid to the latter part of the 90s, and then ultimately we uh, uh, morphed into this uh, opioid epidemic, uh, which, uh, you know, in between there, there was the methamphetamine issue that was uh, the rage out west in, in the central part of the U.S., and, you know, a lot of the focus back then was on methamphetamine while we were dealing with the prescription pill uh, crisis here in the Northeast. Um, and then eventually I think that made its way across the entire country was, you know, usually trends start out the western part of the country and, and make their way east. And I think uh, in reverse, the prescription pill issue and the opioid issue really uh, began here in the east and, and shifted 
that direction, which was something of, of uh, wasn't normal uh, on the way that uh, you know trends, specifically drug trends, have occurred over time. But looking at the current drugs of choice, you know, I was a little bit surprised. Uh, for the you know we know we've had a opioid issue relating beginning with prescription pills and then you know heroin made a resurgence along with now the fentanyl issue which is much more uh, dangerous than just the the heroin and the opioid pills but but looking at it uh, you know last August I, I had some federal drug agents come in and assist and do a drug assessment. In, in the community that I am the uh, head law enforcement officer of. And I was surprised to, to see that crack cocaine was actually one of the high uh, uh, drug of choices in, in the community and the surrounding community. And I think what's dangerous about it is by talking with some of the uh, you know, drug counselors around and some of the other folks in the community is that there is a a sort of a dangerous thought among some of the users that that is a recreational drug compared to the heroin and the fentanyl that you know they they're looking at that as almost like the marijuana of of the eighties and nineties so you know that's disturbing and and, and alarming that uh you know, a drug such as crack cocaine, which is so highly addictive, is, is being used but looked at as maybe, oh, I, I don't deem that as, as dangerous as heroin. So, you know, those are the, the, the drugs of, of choice right now. And, and, you know, we're really in an epidemic. You know, we're, we're uh, I look at it as we're at war right now with, with this drug epidemic across this country. I know that... Uh Indian country many times has been left out of the statistics and the conversation when it comes to the the uh, opioid and drug crisis. Uh, do you have uh, any idea what's happening uh, in Indian country with that uh, with that crisis? Well, we know obviously we're not immune uh, <clears throat> from you know the, the opioid epidemic that's uh, encompassing this country. Uh, Indian country is, is uh, for years, dealt with this methamphetamine issue. Um, you know, we're still dealing with methamphetamine across, you know, Indian country communities. Uh, prescription pills and heroin, you know, has really found its place within tribal communities, communities as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, again, you look at how do you combat that, and, you know, and that is done by resources. Uh, and, you know, Indian country law enforcement, Indian country service providers, you know, do lack, in most instances, the resources to address those issues. Uh, you know, just looking at the uh, drug investigations across the Indian country, for example, uh, the BIA Drug Enforcement Program for uh, Indian Country here in it's deemed as the uh, Southeast Zone, which runs from Maine to Florida over to New Mexico up through the Midwest. That's one 
area of the country that they uh, there's seven drug agents just for that large piece of area. So that's seven drug agents for uh, multiple, multiple states. I think it's like 30-something states in uh, over 150 tribes. So to look at that and to say that that is, is an effective way to address the enforcement piece of it uh, is is something that's a failed process. So, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting an uphill battle here to stay ahead of it. Um, you know, we did get uh, some, uh, I think, resources through this recent uh, congressional spending bill, but uh, uh, a lot of it is uh, channeled through federal agencies, which at times makes it difficult to get down to the local communities. Yeah, it's just uh, looking at this article uh, from the Washington Post by Eugene Scott, and uh, he uh, they mention that uh, there's a big debate about uh, black Americans in inner cities and versus white rural Americans uh, and how effective they are about the drug crisis. But there's a population that never gets talked about and left out of that, and that's the Native American population. He says that more than 52,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2015. That's a lot, 52,000. More than 200% increase from 16 years ago. But he says the epidemic is especially centered outside cities and among Native Americans and whites. Uh, He said deaths rose by 325% over the same period uh, in rural areas and by more than 500% among Native Americans and Native Alaskans. Death rates among black Americans have more than doubled, though they have risen at a lower rate than among other uh, races. And he goes on to say, although many conversations about people of color and drugs focus on black and Latino Americans, Native Americans fear the worst of all minority groups, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, they talk about the historical trauma that uh, Native communities suffer and how that's... uh, uh, contributes to that. It's uh, according to one of the Pew Charitable Trust studies. Um, so our our communities are uh, really getting uh, inundated with this opioid and uh, and drug uh, trafficking and um, and the fact that you know you had uh, another another factor in this is foster care and uh, the boarding schools and how native kids were treated. So it all contributes. Uh, so, I, and I guess, you know, people have their, there are different uh, reasons in different communities why things happen. But uh, this is a continuing, growing issue, and, 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 we're, and we're looking at the Native communities. So, uh, Bob, in, in your experience, what are the, how do you see this affecting the communities and the native families. Well, we, from experience and through working uh, through a holistic approach, uh, one of the things that we found is that the, the family fabric is completely torn apart from this opioid epidemic. Uh, 
you know, in most uh, instances in the past, they addressed just the person, the addicted person, and the family was left out of it, uh, which we found to be problematic. Uh, you know, it, it, it starts with the uh, addicted person, uh, and then it uh, moves into the family structure, uh, down into the, the, it affects the children while they're at school. Many times uh, family members are separated because, uh, you know, social services is called in. You know, there's a child welfare issue. Um, you know, I can recall uh, an instance in, in our community where we did a, uh, uh, an arrest of a, an illegal drug uh, meth lab that was occurring. Um, when we uh, did the arrest, we removed two small children from the home, um, and they were placed into a uh, the tribal uh, child welfare system uh, until uh, the mother received some assistance. Uh, we were called to that home once the mother was uh, released uh, from her short stay in jail, and uh, we had to revive the mother from an uh, overdose with Narcan from from a heroin overdose. So uh, this addiction uh, crisis, again, affects the family. We had the community was uh, extremely shaken by the operation of the meth lab and the uh, and the issues of the you know, the heroin, the use of heroin, finding needles in the community. This is something totally strange to what we've ever dealt with before. Um, you know, the, the family has to be uh, uh, brought through the recovery process just as the uh, addicted uh, client is in the community as well. Uh, the community uh, suffers right along with, with, the, with the addicted person. Well, I know that uh, there are some who believe that uh, longer incarcerations and heavier sentences are the answer. What do you think about that? You know, if you look back at the history of the war, the so-called war on drugs, as they've attempted this for many decades, we we know that that has not worked. Uh, The focus was put on, uh, you know, drug enforcement uh, arrests, longer, stiffer sentences, mandatory sentences. And I'm not saying that enforcement doesn't play a vital role, which it does, but uh, there was a total lack of uh, any uh, attempt to try to uh, look at the the health and wellness of the community and and the recovery process. Um, If you look at, uh, we know through studies that substance abuse and mental health are connected, and we 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 really look at the uh, prison population, and we know that folks that are sent there that are addicted were, were charged because they were addicted to to substances. The substance abuse issues are not receiving the proper mental health care that they that they need to. So, through a, a more of a uh, recovery approach and, and a holistic uh, approach. Uh, through the justice system, you know, they're able to get folks back on a more path of recovery. You, you look at what is spent on prisoners uh, in our justice system, and 
you know, we know that uh, incarceration, you know, they looked at the, the, uh, the, the cost and, and they said if you sent somebody through a recovery process, through a, like a deferred type of approach, uh, whether it's a drug court or a wellness court, rather than traditional incarceration, it's, the savings is between four and $12,000 per year per client. And that's all passed on to the taxpayers. So, you know, it is better for the family and it's better for uh, the community as a whole. And so I don't think that uh, – I think we have to take a different approach, and that is uh, by looking at it in, in a more of a recovery mindset rather than stiffer jail sentences. Yeah. Um, I also uh, – I know that uh, the state of Maine has been focusing on this uh, this issue um, and the uh, attorney general's office has made some uh, recommendations, and uh, those are like I think they gave like uh, there are ten ten uh, recommendations, and just kind of want to get your reaction on those. And uh, the first one is uh, target the areas with a high number of overdoses, uh, hospital admissions, and drug-related crimes, and provide them with additional medical and economic resources, uh, like an opioid version of pine tree zones? Well, I, you know, I think that looking at that, uh, is it the old uh, method of, of uh, saturated patrol? Or is it the old method of inf- infuse uh, uh, you know, resources uh, to quell a, a situation rather than look at the root of it and address it? from the roots up, and so uh, I'm not quite sure if, if that's, uh, maybe that's one prong but uh, of, of a several-prong approach, but to be high on the list, I think that, uh, yeah. I think well, we... Well, in they're saying that uh, the second, the, one of the, the a second recommendation is to monitor and limit uh, opioid prescriptions. What do you think about that one? You know, there was a, and that was found to be effective. I mean, they put the PMPs in place across this country, which did reduce the amounts of prescription pills as was finding their way out on the street. Ultimately, it it ended up uh, raising raising the costs of these illicit pills that that were being trafficked out there. And what we found was. Heroin then then moved in, so yes, that's that's a small piece of it. The, you know, and I think, you know, if you look at the whole history of this, you know, it does stem from the the, the, the pharmaceutical issue. It, it's about over uh, providing of of opioid pills uh, into this country. Hang on to that thought for a second. Uh, you're listening to WERU Webernaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. And we're talking to the Penobscot Indian Nation Police Chief, uh, Robert Bryant, and we're discussing the opioid crisis uh, within the the state of Maine and the Native communities. Uh, Go ahead, Bob. Your thought was on uh, the prescriptions, opioids. Well, I mean, if if you look at it, uh, just in 2014, 41% of calls to the Maine Poison Center received from opioids. in 2014, 89% of drug overdose deaths involved pharmaceutical drugs. 
So to say that the, the pharmaceutical companies, big pharma, isn't complicit in this epidemic that's in, that has uh, darkened this country, we, we would be naive. And, you know, one of my thoughts... Here you go. <laughs> ...traveling down here and, and also in the past was, you know, we, we once had a, uh, a, a legal lawsuit against a, another well-known company, uh, companies, and that was tobacco companies. And they ended up finding them at fault for the health crisis that, that they created over the years and, and, and forced them to, to pay in to help to, to right the ship, per se. The same thing, I believe, should happen here. You know, This has been created from pharmaceutical companies creating these so-called wonder drugs back in the 90s, the oxycotton, uh, the oxycodone. And, you know, what gets lost is what are they doing? Why aren't they be held accountable? And, and why aren't they being told, look, you're going to be paying the same as the tobacco companies are to try to fix some of these problems, whether it's to pour resources into treatment facilities, drug in, drug investigation, drug enforcement agents, the same thing should happen. Same thing should happen. So, so you'd, you'd go a step further than just limiting the uh, uh, and monitoring the, the opioid prescriptions. You'd go right for the, uh, the drug companies themselves. Yeah, I think it should be a concerted effort from the states in this country to come together, the attorney general's office, as they did against the tobacco companies, and and make the pharmaceutical companies own up for what was created here. Right. So, and then the third, there's a third recommendation. Actually, actually ten. This is uh, the third one is uh, uh, make. Uh, I think it's naloxone. Is that how you say that? Uh, Narcan. Narcan. Yes. Available to every family and agency that needs it. I, I agree. We're we're in totally uncharted waters here. If, if you'd have told me back in 1986 when I became a police officer that, you know, we would be engaged in carrying a life-saving overdose of medication on our belt as police officers, I'd have probably told you you were crazy. But we're in a time that, that's totally different. We have to take a total different approach. And, uh, you know, just about seven days ago, you know, we were called to a home where Narcan was administered uh, to save the life of a, a very young uh, mother uh, with, with her uh, infant child in the other room uh, that had overdosed on heroin. Uh, I think that it should be made to more than just first responders, uh, folks that come in to uh, receive services at social service departments, uh, other service provider agencies. If they happen to overdose there, you know, they could die by the time first responders are there. So I, I believe we should make it uh, readily available to, to families, to service provider agencies, first responders. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, it is an expensive uh, medication, but I think that, uh, again, we'll look, we should look at who created this problem. And, and, and have them pay for it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the fourth one is establish an opioid emergency line. That sound like a you know I uh, I, I think I'd have to have more details on what that would be uh, about. Uh, you know we have uh, is it to talk somebody 
uh, down? Is it to receive uh, intelligence information? Is it to provide them with uh, information if somebody's overdosing? So I guess it would be uh, similar to a whether it's a suicide hotline or a domestic violence, sexual assault hotline, I guess we'd, I'd have to see some details on, you know, really what that yeah, hotline and they, would be for and, basically and who would the, man it. Yeah, basically what they're saying is uh, provide accurate information and emergency referrals on a 24-hour basis. You know, it, it, on that subject, uh, emergency referrals, I know that, there was some programs here. I think it started in Massachusetts. Some of it uh, migrated its way here into Maine. I don't know if it was called the Hope Program, or, but anyway, it was. It basically it was, if somebody wanted assistance from law enforcement, they would come in and, and tell, you know, whoever was on duty, I need help. Uh, I have a. I'm addicted to you know whether it's prescription pills or heroin. Or, uh, whatever the drug is, the problem that we we ran into was not enough treatment facilities, and so you know that's back to one of my earlier comments. I think that that's where we really need to dedicate a lot of our resources to not only enhancing our uh, current treatment facilities, but we need to create more of them because uh, it's such a timeline time lapse between the time folks, or even when they come into our wellness program at Penobscot, getting them to a f- treatment facility, getting them bed space to get them on the path of recovery. Yeah. And, you know, and here's the uh, fifth uh, recommendation is the uh, two-year limit on methadone treatment. Uh, that should be uh, lifted and raise Medicare reimbursement rates for treatment uh, you know, I just seen it just it look it's it's sort of like asking the public to pay for what these pharmaceutical people are. Oh, um, and I agree. I, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, we 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 try to look at uh, the issue of of methadone and saying that you know it's a failed a failed process. And the fact of the matter is, uh, the biggest uh, problem that we face is is the is the aftercare. Uh, once we get folks onto the path of recovery, how do we in, uh, implement a, a strong aftercare program? You know, whether it's, it's you know, counseling has to go along with uh, the administration of whether it's Suboxone, Methadone. And, you know, there has to be some tight regulations around that. But, uh, again, you know, Who's going to pay for that? And I agree with you. I think that we have to look at the source of who created it. And, and uh, you know, one of the things we looked at is that, and I think the state isn't taking advantage of it, is expanded uh, Medicare. And that is so we can make access to low-income folks for, for treatment. And, and you know, it, if it's something that we really have to uh, say that we're going to do and, and move forward with it. And I'll just quickly go through the rest of them. The sixth one is expand drug courts um, and provide medication-assisted treatment. The seventh one is provide treatment slots and supportive therapy across the state. Uh, The eighth one, uh, make recovery coaches available 
uh, on call and uh, in every emergency room and clinic. The ninth one is expand the number of detox uh, slots, uh, recovery residence beds, etc. And then the tenth one is uh, provide prevention programs in our schools and communities. Is there any one of those that stands out to you? That well, I think looking at the whole treatment uh, and recovery process, I think looking at how do we really build upon that because I think looking at the justice system's role in that, uh, you know, I was I had the opportunity recently to visit a treatment facility in northern Maine uh, and it really was an eye-opening experience for me. Uh, you know, I sit on the wellness court at Penobscot. Uh, it's a holistic uh, hub approach. Now, before you go further, I just... I want to say this first. Uh, this 10 recommendation list, the last one, they said, uh, look at what Iceland has done with its community programs for all ages. And along with LL Bean, take it outside focus. Well, that's all well and good, but we have some programs that are working right now within our own state. So take it away, Bob. <laughs> you know, and we do. And, you know, you know, one of the things that we uh, have been working at, at uh, Penobscot Nation is a wellness court. Uh, it's a healing to wellness court. So it's about looking not only at the addicted person but at the family as a whole. And what we do is we bring in all service providers as a team approach to understand that, you know, all fabrics of that, of that addicted person's life is broken, whether it's employment, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, child welfare issues, you know, it's issues about getting food on the table. Is it about parenting, uh, uh, you know, basic parenting skills? Uh, so what we do is, is we come together as a team and, and find out how do we support one another to support that person and their family to get them back on a path of recovery. Uh, you know, I, I, I challenge anybody that uh, is in law enforcement to really understand the recovery process. And to do that, I think you really have to uh, engulf yourself into, you know, that process somewhere so you have an understanding of it. I, I was about to say that I was fortunate enough to go to a place called The Farm and, and uh, sit in on and participate on, on some of the sessions there. And it really opened my eyes up to the fact that you know, people are struggling. People, you know, you look at the addicted person, and I can tell you, listening to the pain and, and, and listening to the, the and watching the, the tears that were shed, the folks that are uh, in this epidemic, you know, that it, as young people, they didn't sit out one day and say, you know, I really want to. Be, my goal in life is to be addicted to these substances and. And my whole existence is to chase these drugs uh, and, and to have my life become so unmanageable that it just wrecks my family. None of that is, is what these folks are, uh, set out to do. But we are where we are, and we have to take a different approach than we did years ago. And to me, uh, this the drug courts, the wellness courts, I think is our way out of this darkness. It's about coming together rather than working in silos or working in a one- or two-prong approach of saying, okay, it's about enforcement and jailing people. We're not going to win that way. 
It's just not going to happen. What we have to do is we have to work and look at folks as they truly want to get off these substances. What has put them there? How do we correct that? And, you know, you mentioned the prevention programs. I really want to see something different tried in that area. Uh, You know, I can remember being a young DARE officer. And uh, while I was at the farm, one of the persons that was getting treatment made a statement, and it it really took, took me back. He said, you know, I can remember being a young student in school, and the officer came in and gave us DARE and showed us some of the drugs and showed us some films on what it it, it created people to hallucinate and do other things. And he said, I was intrigued by that. I was sort of, uh, it opened opened my uh, thoughts about, wow, maybe I'll try that. It didn't look like it was that bad. So we have to have a different approach, you know. Dare for all it's worth, you know, yeah, it brought officers into the school and, and, and connected us with the, you know, students in the, in the school staff on a non-enforcement setting. But I think the whole uh, message uh, needed, to, needed to be looked at and saying, you know, was it working? I, I, I don't think so. I think that uh, we have to try something different. And, yes, law enforcement has to be a part of that preventative uh, and prevention message. But how how it's delivered, I think, needs to be really be carefully thought out. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, when you compared the uh, tobacco campaign, uh, they had some pretty powerful tobacco commercials on TV, which were really uh, <laughs> horrible to, to look at. And, uh, and a lot of those were effective. So, yeah, I do think if you're going to educate on, the, on drug use, you have to put the really horrible stuff out there about what it does to you and what, it's, what it does to your family. Uh, the other thing, too, is these uh, wellness courts and drug courts, what, what type of support uh, people are at these sessions to help the, that individual? Well, for example, on our team, we have the uh, prosecutor, we have the defense attorney, we have director of social services, we have uh, director of education, director of housing, uh, the director of public safety, also you know the chief of police. We have the uh, tribal court judge. We have drug counselors. Um, we have cultural leaders uh, uh, that come in, and, and that's one of the I think strong components of our program is that uh, we have a push towards getting the folks back to to the tribal culture. And that healing, that whole healing process, you know, takes place through that, you know, opening the eyes and, and getting back to it, uh, whether it's learning the, the Penobscot language, uh, involving themselves in, in other parts of the, the tribal culture, I think, is, is key to uh, the success that we're, we're seeing. So it's about bringing uh, all service providers to the table and saying, let's work on this problem together and let's work with the family uh, and having them have a voice in this in this process as well. So, do they uh, like create a plan for that individual? Are these like um, tailored sort of to each person, their uh, needs? Exactly right. And uh, 
you know, we meet as a team uh, every two weeks. We also have uh, the wellness court or drug court every two weeks. So, you know, this is a, a ongoing process. You know, we discuss uh, matters as a team prior to the, the court session. We talk about, you know, we go over the, the individual. We talk about, you know, what's working, what's not working. Uh, we, and we have uh, what's working as a team. And we do create a so-called uh, wellness plan for that individual. And it's tailored to that individual. And, you know, I can, you know, we, we got some f- uh, clients in there right now that at one time, as a law enforcement officer a couple of years ago, looking at some of the issues they were involved in. I would have never thought they could have been in the place that they are, but they're making great gains through this process, through, the, through this wellness path. And, uh, you know, it is about taking a different approach and having all those folks. In, and if I talked about the justice system having a role there, we have the prosecutor, the defense attorney, law enforcement, and the judge all on this team. So that brings a... a I think all the players into this, uh, you know, and I think that uh, looking at it, uh, we one of the things I'd like to see us add is maybe an elected official and uh, to have them because, you know, if you look at uh, sometimes laws are made without an understanding of how it affects, you know, sure. the person the that's involved. So to have those folks uh, at, at the table and, and down in the trenches per se, I think would be beneficial. So how does one get into that wellness program? What's the process? A, the person gets uh, arrested for what? You know, one of the things that we found that we were struggling with is because of resources. We're a very small law enforcement agency at the Penobscot Nation is getting folks into the system just on a, say a drug charge, so we expanded it so that we understood that, you know, whether it's a uh, child welfare issue could bring somebody into this 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 process because the the family fabric is broken and sometimes it it somebody may not get charged with a drug possession uh, or a drug crime, but because of the way that the whole family is affected, you know, we, they can be brought in through that. You know, it could be. Uh, an eviction from their from their housing uh, uh, that could say you know we 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 know you know that drugs are affecting your life mm-hmm. and rather than get evicted you know come into the you know the wellness court and, and get your life turned around you know you know I think we've seen before where we've had clients in there on you know the uh, lack of being able to pay for uh, child support so. We've tried, we've gotten creative, uh, you know. As I said, enforcement still plays plays a vital role in this process, and you know we're still struggling on how do we uh, obtain the resources to 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 really fund an adequate drug investigation uh, process in our community. And you know we've reached out; we're, we're collaborating the best that we can with Maine Drug Enforcement, uh, and the best we can with the Bureau of Indian Affairs Drug Enforcement Program. But, you know, I think it, uh, you have to get creative. You can't just wait for somebody to, uh, to, to to violate a law to get them 
on the path of recovery because in some instances it's too late. And if you looked at the statistics earlier, 418 of those people, it was too late for them to get in and get help through a drug court or a wellness court process. Right. Now, the people um, that go into this process that uh, have committed a crime and that have been sentenced, if they go through this, um, I don't know if they've been sentenced, I don't know, uh, if they go through this and are successful at the end of how many years, two years? Is it a two-year? Well, it, you know, it could be, you know, they, they work through a phase, uh, uh, certain phases of the, of the program. You know, it starts out with what we call the tobacco phase and it moves into a sage phase. You know, there's names for it. You know, it's according how well they progress. You know, some folks could move through a program, one of the stages, you know, 30 to 60 days. Some others, you know, it takes a little, a little bit longer. Uh, it's about, you know, you know how, how uh, bad is, is the situation. Um, but what, what traditionally happens is they come in, you know, they're charged with an offense. You know, they work with their defense attorney and say, okay, we're going to, uh, you know, own up to our, our offense here. You know, they're, they're, they're instructed on this is what your punishment is. And what that is is deferred. And if they successfully complete uh, the wellness program, wellness court, uh, or the drug court in other uh, jurisdictions, you know, then that those charges uh, are dismissed. And so, and the ultimate goal here is, is about saying, you know, well, how do we correct the problem? How do we get these folks back so that they're, they're living a better life? And rather than saying, okay, you, you committed a crime, let's throw you in jail. We're, we've we've seen that that does not work. You know, people get back out because they're thrown back into the same circumstances, the same issues, whether it's housing, jobs, education, they're, they're just going to slide back into the same addiction. Yeah. Um, the uh, the process, the court process, it, they, I saw a, a short video. It was like a five-minute and 33-second video uh, on the, uh, the news... It's on news.vice.com. Right. And, it, and it's about the uh, Native American tribe is using traditional culture to fight addiction. And it's about the Penobscot Nation uh, Wellness Court. Uh, and it's a pretty little, amazing little piece. Uh, and I'm at the, uh, at the end of this show, when we archive the show, I'm going to put the, uh, the video site up so that people can see that and how that works because it's uh, – it's it's a pretty powerful uh, piece. You know, and looking at that person that is uh, uh, that that piece is in, involving when he came into the wellness court, and I saw the state that he was in. I got to tell you, I mean, from being prejudgmental, from not only you know you get a little cynical at times working in this field of law enforcement, uh, and also growing up in a, in an addict. At home with addiction, uh, I really gave him uh, a really small chance of, of making it. Uh, I can remember some of the sessions that he came in, and it was just like, 
I don't think this is going to happen. And, you know, he proved me wrong. And, and the process proved me wrong. The process proved that if you let it work, it will be successful. And, and that means both on the, the, the folks, uh, the people that are a part of the team and the client. If you let the process work, if you work the program, work the process, it, it will be successful. Yeah, I remember this guy talking and, and uh, the judge, Judge Minert, uh, saying that uh, when he first came in, that the, uh, the subject just sort of like looked down. He wouldn't talk to anybody. He came in with a hoodie on and uh, just totally isolating himself from everybody uh, in the circle. But as things progressed, uh, he came out of himself and he talked. And uh, it's, you know, it's a night and day difference for this, for this guy. Yeah, and, you know, and it does your, your heart good to see somebody. Cause I, I watched him grow up as a young, young man. I can remember him being a, you know, two or three, four-year-old running, playing in the community, and then to see those drugs take a hold of him, and to see what it did to him and did to his family, and to see that turnaround, it, it's like, it 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 is that beacon of light in this time of darkness, and that's what I look at this epidemic is 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 a real darkness across this whole country, and and. These programs are those beacons of light that we need to, to get folks into to, to get them out of this darkness. Yeah, and it, and it, uh, it shows that it's, it's a treatment that's outside of, the, outside of the box. I mean, it's not the, the everyday throw them in jail and throw away the key kind of treatment. So we really have to uh, approach this. Uh, it is an epidemic uh, differently and actually uh, look at those pharmaceutical companies and have them uh, pay for some of the damage that, that they've been doing. Yeah, one of the things I uh, recently visited also was a place called The Barn. You know, I, saw the, I talked about the farm. The farm earlier, but this the place is yeah. The Barn. It's the Bangor Area Recovery Network. And it's located in Brewer. And, you know, I would like to see a lot more of those facilities spring up so we can start outnumbering the, 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 the local drinking establishments and because the work that that place is also doing is, is amazing. And that is what I'm talking about when I talk about a strong aftercare program. If we can have more of those facilities like the Bangor Area Recovery Network in place, you know, we're going to win this fight. We're going to win this war. Yeah, and it's, but it's going to take resources. It, it is. And it's going to take a change of, of plan. It is. It's. It's got about. We got to be committed, but we also have to say, okay, who's responsible? Let's go after them. Right. And and the war is winnable. It is. We just have to approach it with a different strategy. Uh, so, do you have any last word you want to say, Bob? Or? I just. I just really truly uh, hope that folks, if they have an opportunity, is, is get knowledgeable about the recovery places out there, such as the farm in northern Maine, the, the barn in, in the Bangor area, and, and others that are in, across the state, and understand how it works. And, and really, you know, if you get a chance, uh, give to those places because they do lack the resources. They really, truly lack the resources. Right. And are they also on the Internet? That They are. Maybe yeah. we'll put those sites up uh, there as well. Okay. So uh, 
You've been listening to WERU Abenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, and uh, thank you, uh, Chief Robert Bryant, for joining us, and uh, Dr. R. Marcella Sorg, also for joining us earlier. Uh, the engineer of our show is Amy Brown. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles, from his CD Dreamwalk. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>